Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have one with you, to Mark chapter 16. Mark, the second book of the New Testament, and we're in chapter 16. Since September of last year, we've been studying this book. It's one of four portraits of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. As of last Sunday, we'd made our way to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey. It's often called the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. And we happen to land on Palm Sunday, the passage on Palm Sunday last Sunday. Between chapter 11 and where we are here at the end of chapter 15 into chapter 16, a lot takes place. It's four and a half chapters But it happens in only four or five days. What we decided to do is to skip ahead from chapter 11 last week to chapter 15 at our Good Friday service just a couple of days ago. And then chapter 16 this Sunday to see the resurrection on Easter. And then what we'll do in upcoming weeks, Lord willing, is go back to the middle of chapter 11 and work our way through that week. That week that was, that passion week leading up to the cross. One of the things we've been seeing as we've studied Mark together over the last many months is that Mark has some unique features that distinguish it from the other three gospel accounts. We have four accounts, not four different stories, four accounts of the same story, but there are differences. The stories are put in different order from one to another. Some include the story or leave that one out. Each one has a Unique emphasis, uh, unique literary devices, unique language, of course, because they have unique authors. Some of them begin with the Christmas story. Some of them don't. And yet, with all these differences between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you get toward the end of the story, they all sync up pretty well. They're all about the same thing, and they take their sweet time focusing on it. Matthew gives his last eight chapters to the Passion Week, the last week before the cross. Mark gives his last six six chapters to it. So does Luke. And John gives 10 chapters of his 21 chapters just to the last week of Jesus' life. And then the death and then the resurrection and the appearances. Let's make an obvious note here. That's a really big deal then, isn't it? The death and resurrection is a really big deal. Jesus' teaching is important, yes. That Jesus cared and cared for the lowly is wonderful and needed, and, and it's in our Bibles, and we should appreciate it no less. Yes, Jesus healed, he cast out demons, he fed 5,000, but he died and was raised. And that specifically is the hinge upon which our faith turns. It is the hinge of history. So let's read Mark's account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mark 16, 1 through 8. It says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, They saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. 
And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Can I direct your attention back to chapter 16, verse 1? Notice this time marker, when the Sabbath was passed. That's what we call Saturday 6 p.m., It's what they called Sunday. Sunday began Saturday at 6 p.m. It's now the first day of the week as chapter 16 begins. And that's why we're here today, the first day of the week. That's why we meet here in this building as a church every Sunday. That's why we meet on Sunday and not Tuesday or some other maybe more convenient day. Every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. It is the first day. It is a beginning A new beginning. Listen to how Matthew Henry, a Puritan pastor in the 17th century, talked about this opening verse. He said, Never was there such a Sabbath since the Sabbath was first instituted as this was, which the first words of this chapter, Mark 16, tell us was now past. During all this Sabbath, our Lord Jesus lay in the grave. It was to him a Sabbath of rest, a silent Sabbath. But it was to his disciples a melancholy Sabbath, spent in tears and fears. Never were the Sabbath services in the temple such an abomination to God as they were now. Think about that. Just pause. On Friday, Christ was crucified at the hands of these men, and the temple curtain was torn in two. And the next day, they made their sacrifices. Matthew Henry says, there was never such a day like this as when they were now making their sacrifices, when the chief priests who presided in them had their hands full of blood, the blood of Christ. He says, well, this Sabbath is over, and the first day of the week is the first day of a new world. That's a big statement. It is the first day of a whole new world? You sure wouldn't think so. In Mark's telling of the story, I think Mark does want us to eventually get there. Let's see how Mark leads us there. I think Mark is showing us three primary things about the reality and realization of the resurrection. Three things. The resurrection of Jesus was not expected. That's number one. The resurrection was not expected by Jesus' disciples. You see, in verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, these three ladies, they went and bought something. What did they buy? New white shoes for the first Easter? Easter baskets and little chocolates. Maybe they bought some paint to make signs to show up at the tomb and say, welcome back, Jesus. Perhaps as they traveled there, one said, he is risen. And the other said, he is risen indeed. Or, not that at all, right? 
they bought spices so they might go and anoint him. They bought expensive perfumes, we might say, that out of respect and care for the body, they might apply to this decaying body to reduce the stench. Verse 2, it was very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? You can see in these opening verses, their care, their concern, but also their confusion. They're still reeling from the events of the trial and crucifixion and burial. They're going to the tomb to care for the body of Jesus and only realizing on the way that they have no means of rolling this giant stone away from the tomb to get inside. We Christians, the readers of Mark, know that the stone is already rolled away in a way that they cannot even imagine. But they're not expecting it. If you've been with us as we studied Mark, this seems impossible to us, doesn't it? That they wouldn't expect the resurrection? Remember, Jesus predicted this in chapter 8. He told the disciples plainly that he'd be rejected and killed, and on the third day he would rise. He said basically the same exact thing in chapter 9. He did it again with more detail in chapter 10. In between those, right after the transfiguration where Jesus' glory shone upon the mountain, there's another one where Jesus predicts what's to come. And it shows here that though he was speaking plainly, his best disciples didn't get what he meant. Look over at chapter 9, verse 9. There it says, as they were coming down the mountain... He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. The resurrection was not only unexpected, it was inconceivable. If I said to you, in three days from now, I'm going to jump to the moon, you'd think I'm crazy or speaking in a parable, this is an illustration, maybe it's hyperbole. Well, Jesus said something like that in their thinking. It must mean something other than what he said. He's going to rise from the dead. Maybe they thought in our terms today, yeah, like a phoenix rising from its ashes. You go, Jesus, whatever that means. But whatever they thought that Jesus meant by rising from the dead, his actual death had put an end to it. His actual death had put an end to whatever hopes, however they interpret it, about rising from the dead. These women are here in Mark 16, but the other disciples, the men, are nowhere to be found. Back in chapter 14 at Jesus' arrest, it says in verse 50, they all left and fled. Here, two days later, these women are going to the tomb, but no other disciples seem to be around. And even with these women, though nobly concerned for Jesus' body, they're expecting to find nothing other there than a body that stinks and needs perfume. 
It's important to underscore this point because it's telling about the birth and growth of Christianity. The resurrection was far from a familiar ancient myth that Jesus' followers adopted and inserted into their story. The resurrection was far from a dream, a wish that was imagined upon the story or read back into their experience. The resurrection wasn't a false conclusion that was drawn based on a mistake like going to the wrong tomb and it's empty and they connect some dots falsely. No, the idea of a resurrected body, not a resuscitated body, but a resurrected body, that was not a category available to them. It was actually more foreign to them than it is to anyone in this room, whatever you believe. Because at least you've heard about it. You're here, you've, you've heard me. If you didn't hear it before today, you've heard it right now. And they didn't even have that. The resurrection was not expected. Secondly, the resurrection actually happened. It was not expected, and yet it actually happened. Verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? Alarmed indeed. They would be alarmed that the stone was rolled away. Who did this? What are they up to? These grave robbers? They go inside. There's a man inside, a man they don't know, and he's sitting there. Who goes into empty tombs and sits? Mark doesn't tell us that he's an angel. We can surmise that based on the other gospel accounts. He's wearing a white robe. That tells us enough right there. This is no choir robe or hotel bathrobe that you have in the closet of a nice hotel. This is, this is something angelic. He's alarming. This situation is alarming. And despite the, despite the fact that the angel says, don't be alarmed, he then says something that the women find even more alarming. He is not here. He has risen. See the place where they laid him? They have the right tomb. They've been there. It's familiar, but there's no Jesus. How do you explain that? Now, if you're coming to Mark 16 with a purely naturalistic or materialistic worldview, you won't find anything of a satisfying explanation for this. Mark doesn't explain how the stone was rolled, whether Jesus needed the stone to be rolled to get out. It doesn't explain so many things. We could just list several of them right now, which we won't do. But, but rather than look for something satisfying, remember that this is just one supernatural thing in a big, long Bible of supernatural things. Mark's story, if you're reading Mark along, and you get to chapter 16, and you stumble over the reality and historicity or possibility of the resurrection, well, you should have given up reading Mark much earlier. 
I mean, you've got Jesus casting demons out and, and healing the sick and, and raising the dead and feeding 5,000 and feeding 4,000 and walking on water and calming the storm and having the sea, when it's tossed to and fro, be still in a second. How do you do that? If Jesus is who he said he was, then the supernatural is simply assumed. So your petty little science is useless with this God. Playing your best inspector Clouseau with mystery-solving techniques, well, it's no good here. We're dealing with something beyond our comprehension, beyond your graphs and calculators and observation and reason. And one indication that this is an authentic account is that the first witnesses were women. I think I point this out most Easter's. I was hoping to say Easter's sometime this morning, and there it is, I said it. I point this out most years, but I think it's important for us to keep remembering it, that in first century times, women, sadly, were not considered reliable witnesses. I know it sounds horribly misogynistic, but it's unavoidably true, and it says something quite powerfully about what we have before us in Mark and in Matthew and in Luke and in John. The women were the first at the tomb. And if the early church was reconstructing the story of Jesus with a made-up resurrection as part of it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't write a resurrection story that started with a few women who in those days were not even allowed to be reliable testimonies in a court of law. Again, I know it's wrong, but it's true. And one of these three was formerly famous for being demon-possessed. That's pretty unreliable of a witness, I think. Someone who was once demon-possessed, perhaps. Neither would you write the story, this grander story of Jesus and his disciples, with such persistent unbelief and failure on the part of the disciples. It's been everywhere as we've studied Mark. Foot-in-mouth stories, left in right. Almost no story paints the disciples in a good light. They keep walking with Jesus, but they just don't get what he says. They fled when he was arrested. One betrayed him, another denied him. They watched the crucifixion only from a safe distance. Day two, nowhere to be found. Day three, nowhere to be found. Only a few women, and even these women who care the most, aren't going to the tomb saying to each other, it's the third day, he said, third day so many times, third day. Now they're saying, oh shoot, who's going to roll the stone? They're not expecting what happened. In fact, they don't at first respond well to what was told them. So thirdly, the res resurrection presents a dilemma. The resurrection presents a dilemma. The angel said, do not be alarmed. He is risen. He's not here. And then go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And what do they do? And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I said already, they didn't have a category for a resurrection. 
How much so? Well, when it's told to them, they don't think it's good news. They don't hear it as good news. It was alarming. It was an utter game changer. You see, the resurrection confronts before it comforts. You have to know that. For all of us, not just them, the resurrection must confront before it can ever comfort. Paul talks like this in Acts 17 when he's preaching there to Gentiles and talking about how the coming judgment that God has designed is proven to be true. You know it's so because Jesus was raised. Paul says, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is a confrontation. The resurrection is not a magic trick. It's not just a happy ending slapped onto a tragedy. Neither is the resurrection just proof that Jesus is God. The resurrection is not just his vindication over his enemies and proof that his enemies really couldn't win in the end. The resurrection is something of a confrontation. If Jesus is alive, then he is God's man. He's the promised one. He's the king. He is the son of man, talked about in Daniel 7, who inherits the nations from the ancient of days. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, to whom all obedience goes, who will rule with a rod of iron. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And the resurrection shows us that he has brought a new way and he is bringing in a whole new world. But the resurrection isn't just threat. The resurrection itself is scary to these women and perhaps rightly so in some ways. But the resurrection also means that a path has been carved through death to life. Jesus conquered sin and death. The resurrection was proof that the payment that he was making, the ransom he was giving, was accepted by God. It was paid in full. The resurrection is the stamp saying so. It confronts and it comforts. And notice that the announcement that the angel makes to them wasn't threat, but it was invitation. It was reminder. It was instruction. Verse 7. He's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. Just think of each of those three phrases in verse 7. Each one is worthy of meditation, thinking on, chewing on. He is going before you. The shepherd, he goes before the sheep. He's gone ahead for safety. There you will see him. We will see him. They would see him. Just as he told you. When did he tell them this? Well, look back to chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 28. Here's where Jesus told them this. And again, it's another resurrection promise. He said, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He said it. He did it. 
The angel reminded the women of it. And she needs to tell the disciples and Peter. Did you notice that in verse 7? Tell his disciples and Peter. Why is Peter singled out? He's one of the disciples. Well, actually, he's not being singled out. He's actually being included. What was the most recent Peter story that we've read about here in Mark, if we've been reading it straight through? When he denied the Lord. He denied knowing the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. And with the third one, he cursed himself if he ever knew the man, he said. I mean, to put it in, in harsh terms, but accurate ones, it's as if Peter said on that third, that third denial, God damn me if I ever knew the man. That's what he said. And then he went out and wept bitterly, it says. Can you imagine how he felt that Friday night? Can you imagine how long Saturday was for Peter? Can you imagine Sunday morning waking up thinking, did I really do that? He told me I would. I said I wouldn't. I won't, Lord, I promise. And, and I did it. I did it three times. If Peter had heard that Jesus was now alive and he was now calling for his disciples to meet up with him in Galilee, you have to wonder, would Peter hear that? Hear disciples and think, am I even one anymore? Does he even want me? Did I blow it so bad? He's done? Can you imagine the joy Peter would have received to hear the disciples and Peter? Really, me? Yeah, Peter, he, he said your name specifically. The angel said, and Peter. Unfortunately for the women, that's not what happened next. Remember verse 8? They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. They did the exact opposite of what the angel instructed them to do. You have fear, you have fleeing and silence. What a bad combination and yet a combination that pops up a lot in this book of Mark. It's familiar to us if we've been studying this together. Remember that fear and faith are often contrasted in Mark. Faith is, fear is not a good thing in Mark. It means the absence of faith. Why are you afraid? Do you not believe, Jesus said? Fear, faith, I mean no faith, fleeing, silence. They dared not ask him. It's just all over, Mark. We could run through a whole stream of verses that show us that. And they culminate with chapter 16, verse 8. They went out. They fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to no one, for they were afraid. And that's how Mark ends. That's the ending of the gospel according to Mark. I can't take long to explain this to you, but look down in your Bibles. At the end of verse 8, you either have a note, like in the ESV, right in the middle with brackets around it that says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20. 
Or in other Bibles, it'll be a footnote at the bottom. Some NIVs even just remove this text completely and put the whole text, verses 9 to 20, down in a footnote. Actually, what the ESV says, that some of the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses, is a bit of an undersale. It's understated. It's actually not in any early manuscripts. It's not until the 8th century that we get any manuscripts that contain verses 9 to 20. None of the early church fathers quote verses 9 to 20 or even know anything about those verses. The language in the Greek of verses 9 to 20 is very different than what came before. There are eight or nine or ten different words used in verses 9 to 20 that were never used in the 16 chapters that preceded it. On and on I could go with reasons for why we should think that Mark ended his gospel account with verse 8. But let me stop and just say, don't be alarmed by this. We're not playing loose with our Bibles here. We're not cutting something out. This Bible didn't come to us like some other holy books, other religions, where it's just this book. Here it is. We got the book. It's this golden book. Well, ours were written down by people on manuscripts and such, and they survived over the years. There are about 5,400 or so manuscripts that have been discovered, and many of them have been discovered in the last couple hundred years, last hundred years, so we know more than we used to know. Somewhere along the line, probably someone added verses 9 to 20. I suspect because Mark's true ending seems so odd. It seems so sad. It seems like it's not like the others, Matthew and Luke and John. They all have appearances of Jesus, people seeing him. They all have happy endings. They all have great commission passages, go and tell. Mark doesn't. Mark was the first one. Because Mark doesn't have these things, we shouldn't think we should add some in. Instead, we should try to figure out what he was up to when he wrote like he did. Mark likes abrupt endings. Not just here, but all through the book. He likes seemingly odd endings to stories. And we shouldn't be surprised that fear and astonishment are right here at the end. Fear has been such a huge theme all the way through, and now it culminates with these women fleeing and fearing. Of course, the other gospel accounts do go on to give us more than what Mark has. The women do not stay silent or sad or fearful. They did eventually tell. They did eventually see. But I think Mark is highlighting their fear and their fleeing because he's representing the resurrection as this dilemma, this fork in the road. And as he writes to first century people, probably around A.D. 60 or so, I think he's putting a fork in the road for them. Just like us today, maybe even more so, Mark's first readers would have been tempted to be afraid to flee and hide, to keep quiet and be safe. And don't you see what Mark's doing here? He's saying, look, this is what it looks like when you don't get the resurrection. You're afraid, you flee, and you don't talk about it. Not you. These women eventually didn't stay like this. You know that, I don't even need to write it, I think Mark would tell us. But how about you? They were afraid, they fled, they wouldn't tell. How about you? 
I think Mark is also giving us an announcement of the risen Christ without giving us appearances of the risen Christ. I think Mark ends without anyone seeing the body of the risen Christ. And why would he do that, you say? Jesus did appear to many after the resurrection. We know that from the other gospel accounts. We know in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that at one time, Jesus appeared to 500 people at the same time. Why not include those, Mark? Well, think about this. Some in those days knew that the resurrection had happened because they had seen the resurrected Christ. But not all. Not all. Not even Mark. Not even Mark. Think about it. Churches in the first century were made up of a few people, perhaps, who had seen the risen Christ, and therefore they believe in the resurrection. And others who had to have it announced to them. Like you. Like me. I didn't get an appearance, did you? I mean, if you did, I want to hear the story. I'm not sure I'll believe it, but I want to hear the story. We didn't get appearances, did we? We got an announcement. I think Mark is writing to his readers and saying, it's enough. These ones who saw, it's good that God let them see that they might tell us what they saw. And they can say, believe it with, I believe it with my own eyes. I saw it with my own eyes. But I think Mark would say, you're not missing something if you didn't see him. Believe his word. And that's what the angel is announcing to the woman, the women. His announcement that the Christ had risen didn't guarantee their belief and immediate joy and obedience, but that's what he was calling them to, to not be afraid. I'm announcing it to you. He's risen. Don't be afraid. Remember what he said to you. You see verse 7? All of this was just as he told you. That's why we believe the resurrection. I mean, one reason we believe the resurrection is because Jesus showed himself to people and they wrote it down and it seems pretty convincing. I can't come up with a better explanation than a risen Jesus. Another reason I believe the resurrection is because Jesus told me. Not literally in my ear, not in my hearing, but in his word, he's told me. It's been announced to me. You can trust the resurrection because Jesus says so. How's that for an apologetic in the Christian life? For Christianity, you can trust the resurrection really happened bodily, historically, truly, because Jesus says so. And you say, Ryan, we don't trust people who say, trust me, because I say so. It depends who's saying it, though. We parents sure believe in this when our kids push us a little bit. Ten o'clock is the curfew because I said so, right? We get into said-so theology with our kids all the time. We can do it with Jesus because he's far more trustworthy to us than you are to your kids. And yet it's legitimate for you to say to your kids, because I said so, because I have the authority to say so, because I know better than you, because it really is the way, this way and not that way, because I said so. He's the first and the last. He's the living one. He died Behold, he says, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and hell. Easter is shocking. It's a confrontation with the living God. He's alive. This changes everything. Reckon with that.
It's not just a confrontation. It is comfort for those who see why it would be a confrontation if it were not for a sacrificial death upon the cross and a resurrection that means they're good and not their threat. Easter is a time to celebrate the good news that Jesus welcomes Peter's. Those who curse his name. Those who are slow to understand. Those who are outcasts in society. He welcomes them. He says, come to me. Just hear these words, Christian, that the angel told the women that day in the tomb. Hear these in your own hearing, your own context, with, with, with your New Testament in your mind. He is going before you. He has gone before you, and you will one day meet him in a new heaven and a new earth. It is just as he told you. Go to his word. He told you. He's told you much, either by his own words or through his messengers. Seek him. This one you seek. Don't seek the living among the dead, but seek him and keep seeking him. One day you will see him. Until then, trust what he has told you. And don't be alarmed. And don't be afraid. Instead, believe. Don't flee, but go and tell. All these great sayings have powerful connotations for us now as Christians who have promises even grander than those that were given to these women. They had no idea. They had no idea how much more is still to come. We can trust it because he said so. Let's pray for his help to trust it. Oh, Lord Jesus, our Savior and friend and King, we marvel today at your gentleness, your patience, your gracious restoration of one like Peter and us. And we marvel at your majestic glory, that you're the King of all the earth, the King of kings and Lord of lords, that none will hold back your hand in the end. None will thwart your purposes and plans. You will have your way. You are God on the throne bringing about your plan. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray for those who are with us who don't yet love that name, Jesus, who don't yet see hope in a cross and resurrection. Would you cause them to see, to believe? Would you remove sin and guilt and make them yours again? We pray as Christians, Lord, that we would be bold about this grand and glorious message. We know who you are. They wondered all through the gospel according to Mark, who is this one? We know, not fully, but we know. And we don't yet see you, but we love you with a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. Give us more love, more faith, and more joy. For your namesake, amen.